Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And welcome for his second appearance, Tony Morris, author of The Filmmaker's Legal Guide. Morning, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Very good. And we're face to face today, not not on the Skype. We are. Which is not novel for me, to be honest with you. Good. Um, this is a in, on the first show we did together. We covered areas that were we're looking more, I think, from a kind of producer looking to make films and how they sort of protect themselves. And so it's from that point of view of taking products and then making films. And and this time around, I asked around a few filmmakers, screenwriter friends, and and that's you know what questions would you have in a legal sense? And we've we've got sort of, I guess three rough areas we're going, to, we're going to cover with a number of questions under those. So we've got, we're going to look at that, the author's right to protect their interests, which I think is mm-hmm. of interest to the screenwriters out there. Um, getting paid, which I think is of interest to anyone who gets involved in the production that's got a, bi- a business plan and some finance. Um, look at the best way to make a movie, I suppose, and then look at how, if you're a producer, what, what does legal services and costs means and how do you get yourself ready for what that all means for you. Does that sound okay, Tony? Absolutely. Take it away. All right, then. Well, let's start with the author's rights to protect their interests. So, how accurate is it for authors of original story ideas to assume that as the first person to write it down, they're the person that owns the copyright? Right, okay. Well, in a sense, the answer of the question is in the second part. Uh, As I think we discussed before, there's no copyright in an idea. There's only a copyright once you put the idea into a permanent format so writing it down typing it out dictating the story onto a onto a machine mm. those are all uh, ways of um, putting your copyright into making your idea into a permanent form so under English law and in fact in it's the same throughout the EU um, the uh, copyright laws are pretty much the same and the copyright is a creature of law it arises as a matter of law so once you've written it down you own the copyright um, and as I explained in the book you know the main exceptions to that are where you create a copyright in the course of an employment and so if you are employed by a production company mm. that produces children's television programs and you're employed in-house to write scripts mm. By virtue of that employment relationship, your employer, 
the production company is the owner of the copyright in... So if I went to the BBC scripts. writing EastEnders... Exactly. BBC, I don't own the copyright of my episode. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, but then uh, the sort of problem that we get is where someone's written something. Uh, they may have passed it on to a producer. Uh, the producer then might change it. There's no contract. There's not much in the way of evidence. Perhaps some emails... At that point, you get into some kind of a problem because you know, a year, two years, even five years down the line, the, uh, the, the, the writer suddenly sees that his production's on television or in the cinema, and he says, well, actually, I wrote that story. And then you're down in, into the area of proof and claims mm. and dispute. Um, and at that point, it's... Um, it's what we call an evidentiary issue. Mm. Um, I've had this on numerous occasions where this type of thing has happened. Yeah. Uh, once or twice, in fact, on, I can't obviously mention the names of films, of but two um, yeah, reasonably successful British movies, one in the 80s, one in the late 90s, um, you know, the sort of two million, three million pound films yeah. where the uh, person who claimed to have written the original story had been involved in the project and the project evolved and changed and by the time it got to the screen it was a bit different but there was probably enough Mm. on the screen to be able for that writer to say well actually I'm at least the co-author of that copyright some of that work is mine how do you go about it? well um, unless you've got the uh, the guilty producer or other party prepared to put their hands up, you've got a lawsuit, mm. which most times the sort of writers that get ripped off like that are not going to be in a position to fund. Um, and um, sometimes their their link to the finished their works linked to the finished yeah. product is perhaps more tenuous than they believe um, yeah because I mean I, th- I think as a, as a, a screenplay is a damn sight harder than writing an, I- an idea is a summary I mean a, a follow your example now whenever I speak to people about ideas that they're interested in I say just to confirm this is the idea I discussed with you yada 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 right let me know you want to progress so just that simple confirmation but obviously the, the idea can grow in all kinds of directions and become a screenplay with somebody else's vision. Well, that's the, the, that's the point. I mean, copyright protects... In order to show that copyright has been infringed, yeah. you need to show that either there's a substantial copy of the whole of a work mm. or a copy of a substantial part and what substantial is in the eyes of the court is it, 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 it's a qualitative and a quantitative mm. uh, examination. Yeah. So, for example, in the one that I'm particularly thinking about, um, the story revolved around a particular character who was short of money, who engaged in a particular activity that was a little bit unusual mm. to raise money. Yeah. And there are a couple of protagonists and there are a few set pieces. When I read the original script that this bloke had written ten years before the film 
hit the screen, there were one or two elements that were quite clearly there. Yeah. Um, I thought he had a very difficult case in the sense that there's a point at which, yeah, the idea is similar mm. and one or two of the characters was there and there was one set piece that was similar. And you might argue that between 5 and 10% of the finished film had some roots there, mm. but not enough to say that the whole thing was a, a copy of a, a, a substantial part or a substantial copy. Mm. I mean, if the, the, the ultimate writer had been honest, he'd have said, you know what, I finally got the project away, I'm going to give you 5% of the writer's fee and 5% of anything else, or even maybe 10%. Okay. I'd have said to the bloke, you know what? Take it. Take it, because I think... <laughs> and, and get a credit. Yeah, yeah. Additional material buy or yeah. additional whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think if he'd gone to court, he would probably have won a little bit and it would have cost him vastly, vastly more to fight the case. Got you, got you. Right, and this next question is almost like the inverse of the conversation yeah. we had for the first one. So from the writer's point of view with so many film projects cross-platforming into different media now. So I could write myself a film or a TV programme and, and then it could be exploited into other areas. So you've got musicals on Broadway becoming Absolutely. films. I mean, John, John August just done one of his own movies became a Broadway musical. Um, so how does, how does the, the author protect themselves? Because obviously your advice to a producer would be make sure you get all the rights in case you want to go that way with what you're investing money in. Yeah, there's no magic to this. Okay. Okay. Ultimately, it's what you agree. And just as I, if I'm representing a producer, I'll want to advise him to get as many rights as, as possible that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. If you're a writer, um, you want to retain as much as possible. So it's negotiating power. Um, how desperate is the writer? So it's a buyer and seller's market. Well, it is. I mean, if, 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 if I was in the fortunate position of acting for a writer who commands, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a script, I'm in a much better position to say, well, you're buying the script. Yeah, and you, you, you can have an option on a sequel, hmm. um, and the option will be, you know, three years from the first public exhibition of the original movie and you know there'll be a mini max formula for defining how much money is paid mm. uh, no you're not having the novelization rights um, and so on and so forth but if you're a, a first-time writer or, or, or a budding writer or, or a writer who needs a few bob you're more likely to sort of say well you know they want all these rights um, what you should do in any event, even if the producer insists on acquiring the um, other rights, is to write in some language to ensure that you are paid for those additional rights. Okay. So that, that, that there's some formula or, or, or something. Um, Actually, this leads on to one of the other questions that, that you've raised uh, later on about companies. Mm. Um, and maybe I can deal with it now because 
Because it's the question about whether limited liability is, it, it is, and, is and, the best and, umbrella for and making it's a all, film. You know, um, and in fact, something hit my desk literally yesterday where this is of, of, of concern. Um, as you know, Stuart, most, most, um, most feature films are usually produced by what we call an SPV, a single-purpose vehicle. Yeah. Um, so uh, producers may have a, 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 an umbrella company into which they, you know, which, through which they run their business, but when it comes to actually shooting a movie, they'll set up, um, you know, DOCO 2017 Limited for mm. that particular purpose. And there's a number of reasons that, that that's done. Uh, it can have to do with this tax structuring. Mostly it's to put all the contractual liabilities into one uh, entity. And when the film has been shot, the rights, the ownership of the rights in the film will usually get hived up either into the umbrella company or a rights-owning vehicle. Okay. Where the writer and the other profit participants need to be careful is to ensure that if they contract with the SPV production company, the company that's actually making the film, mm. that will not necessarily be the entity that will collect the income and account for back-end profits. So when the writer does those kind of deals, yeah. where he's getting a you know, 2-3% share of the back-end, he needs to ensure that the contract is written in such a way that he will be accounted to by the accounting entity. Um, because very often, and I've had so many examples of this over the years, mm. I can't even count them, by the time the, prof the, the, the film moves into profit, the contracting entity has been dissolved. And all the writer then has is a contract with a dead company. And it's got, he's got no way of enforcing the obligation to pay his back-end share. So the way you do this is you require the contracting entity to procure that the... Um, accounting entity pays the writer directly or, and you will be familiar with this, you have a CAMA, a collection account management agreement to which the, part, the writer will insist he's a direct party so that the collection agent for the film, the entity that's appointed to collect all the income, collects that income and pays the writer or the director or whoever else mm. there. Does that also give the writer sort of ability to see accounts and stuff? You yes. Know? That's what that but in any event, in your writer's agreement, you should have proper accounting and audit provisions. Mm. And all this stuff's covered in the book. So. Mm. Okay. So... Just for that second You're looking a bit worried there, Stu. No, no, no. It's no, like no. you've done a contract with someone, you think, oh my God, am I going to get my, my payment? No, no, it was, it was more the fact, I, I, I'd always assumed that um, it was more the exclusivity of the producer. It was always the writer was kind of pushed out from that kind of visibility of the accounting. In the, in well, the yeah, but obviously but it, No, 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 it does happen, and okay. it happens all the time, right, which please. is why... I'm very, I'm very keen on this. Mm. Um, some producers, and I mean, I've done a, 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 a 
did an agreement for a scriptwriter within the last couple of months mm. where the producer refused the, um, to put in a provision that he would procure that whoever ends up you know, putting the film out mm. counts directly. But he did agree to have um, a camera and that the writer would be a direct share. And the company with whom the writer is contracting is a, it seems to have been around for a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not one of these sort of fly-by-night things. Yeah. So that's, that's what you've just read is what happens when people do the limited liability. So Stuart Wright Films makes Scary Film Limited as a production to do Scary Film. That then dissolves and everything comes back to shit. And then that's where the writer can get lost in the process yeah. of... And, you know, and listen, I had, I had a case, I think I may even have mentioned it in the book, uh, yeah. about five years ago, where uh, the lead actor on a very successful TV series, uh, which ran to, I don't know, three, four seasons, whatever it was, uh, he had a two-point-back-end share, and this series did very well internationally. But... His, the company he signed with was some was set up in a, a, a tax effective jurisdiction. He never got a penny. Wow. Never got a penny. Um, and the, the, his business manager, consultant, I said, "Look, when you do these deals, get a camera. Mm. A lot of television um, television people who don't like cameras." Um, you know, if you're dealing with something like Channel 4 or BBC, they're, they're properly, you know, they're big organisations, they've got proper accounting arrangements and you'll get paid. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. But when you're dealing with uh, a network of production companies underneath that, that's where you can get lost. So, so you're describing there, it, it, just picking up the, the point of that, the question about limited liability. Is a limited liability company still the best umbrella to produce a film, or are there other options when yeah. considering the filmmakers? Um, yeah, well, there are. Um, as a filmmaker, having a limited liability company makes sense because it protects you from liabilities. So, you know, if the set catches fire, well, hopefully you're insured. Mm. Um, then, in theory, unless you've been personally responsible for dodgy electrics or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, the company will be liable and covered. Um, you engage in limited liability to protect yourself from being personally liable if something goes wrong. That's part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are things in English law called LLPs, which is a limited liability partnership. You can have companies limited by guarantee. But each of these entities, and I think it's probably a bit too technical for this podcast, yeah. uh, will give limited protection. And sometimes, depending on who's putting the money in, where it's coming from, whether you're doing co-productions with particular other countries, there may be tax reasons for structuring something outside of a limited company. So then what we enter in there is like normal corporate law about how businesses are constructed. Yeah, it's all that type of thing. Okay. But I mean, generally I would say for a filmmaker... It, it is worth having a limited company, but you've got to remember, mm. if you're a limited company, you have to do various filings every year. So you have to file an annual return, and you have to file the accounts. The annual return sets out, you know, who are the directors and all that type of thing. Uh, the uh, accounts are the accounts of the business. Mm. Um, curiously, this is quite interesting, uh, I had a thing the other day where 
um, a, a bloke was going to do a deal with this company and put some money into it, uh, and it was dormant. Um, and it had been sitting dormant for about X number of years. And I said, well, presumably I'm going to reactivate it. So when you are dealing with a limited company, it's a very, very easy thing. You can download the company's house app onto your phone. Can you, you Oh, yes. And in, oh, seconds, in seconds, you can find out about the company. Um, it will give you, if it's still in existence, whether it's up to date with its filings, uh, it tell you a little bit about the company. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've used the website before, but that's nice to know you can go. It's a oh, free app, and I, well, yeah, I use it all the time. Okay then. Well, here's one for uh, for sort of someone caught trying to get get work going, I suppose. Mm. So pitfalls of a writer doing any kind of creative work without contracts or agreement in place. So basically, new relationships. We're both feeling each other out. We're sh- we're enthusiastic, and. Uh, now, the example given is, what's, what's the prevalent wisdom on doing it or not? So, for example, pitching an adaptation, a book adaptation idea without the rights already for you and your producer goes, do you know what? That book, that, 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 I've got a writer that can do that book. And suddenly you've just given a producer a good business idea. Okay, all right. So I think there's two different questions there. Let's take the second part first. Mm. Um, interestingly, I read a book last year called Devil in the White City, mm-hmm. which is um, it's set in Chicago, last quarter of the 19th century, two parallel stories, one about a serial killer, one about the creation of the Great Exhibition. Sounds good. Right? Um, and it, it, it's two true stories. Okay. And I was doing one of my classes at Raindance, and I was using it as an example of the fact, because we're going to come on to this in the next question, mm. about you know stories that are public domain stories and so on and so forth. Mm. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And one of the guys in the uh, class wrote it down. Mm. He said, well, that sounds like a really good book. You know, Maybe I should look into optioning it. And of course, now it's being made into it. It's been optioned. And uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's been... Um, Scorsese's optioned it, and Leonardo DiCaprio has been slated to the, the to be the uh, the serial killer. Sounds like that boat sale. <laughs> so the point being that once there's a if there's a book out there, it's it's that is anyone can go and get a book. Anyone can apply to the publisher or whoever or the author who controls the rights mm. to a published work. Yeah to option it. So there's two points here, Stuart. Mm. Firstly is where there's a book that's been published mm. and the author or the publisher will control the rights, anyone can apply to those persons mm-hmm. for the right to do it. That's one thing. The second thing is the confidentiality of a pitch. Okay, And I think you mentioned this earlier on in, in the discussion about, about writing to confirm things. Mm. I think we may have discussed last time uh, the reluctance of many uh, bigger companies, the BBCs, the Channel 4s, to sign NDAs. And they're always concerned not to. And I'm assuming your audience will know that an NDA is a non-disclosure agreement, uh, essentially an agreement by which you will not use subject matter provided pursuant to that NDA without doing a proper deal Mm. Um, 
And there's often a reluctance of uh, producers to sign these because they will say, how do we know that somewhat we're not already developing something along the same lines? Taking what you've been doing one stage further, and I think this is mentioned in the book, what you can do after you've had your pitch meeting is to add to what you said, you know, dear producer, you know, we met at such and such and I told you about my idea for this, 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 this. Mm. I left you a copy of the treatment. Uh, clearly, this treatment is my copyright. Mm-hmm. You can also add, uh, you will appreciate that I have provided all this information to you in confidence. Okay? Even though you haven't got a formal non-disclosure agreement, there are circumstances in which the law will imply that a duty of confidence arises. And even though I suggest to people like yourself and your listeners that they might include that reference in an email, Mm. Um, I would argue that where you exchange valuable information about a creative project, that the law would imply a duty of confidence. Mm. So does that answer the question? Yeah, it does, yeah, because I mean, I guess the flip side of that is, is before you get to that point where you finish the meeting, so you go home and do that confirmation, is that during the meeting, if they already had a finger in that pie, so let's say they're already looking at that book, Odds are slim, but like the, if it's more popular, is the more chance they, that they they go. Let me stop you there. This project is something we're already developing, and if that conversation's had at that point before anything's gone any further, both parties are aware of where they stood at. Does that make would that stand up legally? You know, if I've gone to meet you to pitch, right? Okay, I'm going to answer this in a slightly different way. Okay, being a lawyer, you don't expect straight, straight answer every time. The proof of this is often how things come out in court. So there have been examples of where broadcasters have been shown to have had a particular reality show pitched to them um, and then they've slightly changed it and broadcast it and then the original format devisors come along two, three, four, five years later and say, well, actually, That's mine. We, can <laughs> show, and we can show it. Yeah. So it's what can you prove? Mm. Which is why... You know, and I, I always say this in my lectures, I think email's great for this kind of thing because you can do an instant confirmation of what happened. It's there, you've got the date and time. And, of course, if you receive something, and you think, well, actually, Mr. Writer, that's not quite right. This is what we actually said. Yeah, see. so you're giving someone the chance to yeah, actually confirm exactly. themselves as well. Yeah. Okay, cool. But, but, but it's a paper trail... You know, you file it in your Outlook or you print it out and you can refer to it in the future. I mean, obviously, sometimes when these disputes arise, it's, you know, the person with most uh, muscle is the person who's got the money to spend most on legal fees, mm. which is sad indictment. Um, then that's... that's all, all you can do is, is to try and adopt best practice and stick to it, mm. and then you've got something to refer to and rely on. Now, this, this is one of my favourite questions that came in, because it's something that I've, listened, I've heard other podcasts about screenwriting talk about this, so what are the laws around public domain stories? Some stories out there seem to be anyone can cover them, but then you read that studios have... And this is where... I, I didn't believe you could actually option 
an LA Times feature on a oh, yeah, about yeah, a guy yeah, who yeah, fell yeah. down a well. You know, so we've it's the LA Times. The story is he fell down a well, but it's the LA Times feature right. that you've optioned. A new story is public to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I suppose in theory you would distinguish between. What happens that you know? Let's say there's a road accident and a motorcyclist gets killed. Turns out that he was a, a, a courier, and he was taking a package of diamonds to um, someone to smuggle out of the country on a on a boat from Pool in Dorset across the Channel. Mm-hmm. Okay and the diamonds were the proceeds of crime and this all unfolds mm-hmm. right and um, quite like your pitch <laughs> it's mine <laughs> come on carry on which is not bad though, is it okay no I'm just thinking about it okay so as this story unfolds and there's a trial and Mr Big goes to jail I mean mm-hmm. that is in the public domain On the bare facts of those stories, you know, motorbike accident, diamonds, criminal syndicate thing, why can't anyone write a script based on that? Yeah. Okay. Right, now there's a number of aspects to this. Um, the prevalent view of lawyers is that there's no such thing as life rights. Okay? In other words... Let's say that the um, motor bicyclist's mother was part of the ring, okay, and she's an important character in, in this whole scenario. Yeah. Um, it's a true story. I, I, I don't need her permission to include her as a character as long as I don't defame her. Mm-hmm. What my producers tend to do... Mm-hmm is nevertheless to sign up. They will go to the mother of the dead motorcyclist and say, look, we we want to make a feature about this. We would like to sign you up. So you will give us your exclusive story. And by doing that, it prevents her contractually and morally from going to another producer who might offer more money. So you're tying in the real-life protagonist into your project. So you've got some exclusivity. And we've done this with loads of... Um, uh, we've done this lots of times yeah, yeah. Where, where, where a dramatisation <coughs> of a true story has been made. There's another thing, which is that sometimes the... I mean, you gave an example of the LA Times... It may well be that, um, for example, let's take the O.J. Simpson um, trial, right. that TV series. I don't know if you saw it. I've not seen it. I'm aware it's, of it. It's very, very good. It's about eight or ten or whatever episodes. Mm-hmm. That was actually based on a book of the uh, actual facts. The book was written by a journalist. Okay. And I've actually read the book and seen the thing. And, and the, the television thing follows a lot of what's in the book. It actually leaves out some of it. Mm-hmm. But it's clear to me that irrespective of the fact that 
these were real people. The characterizations that the screenwriter and the director has imbued in the performances and the portrayals of the characters mm. are derived from the way in which that writer portrayed those people in his book. Okay. And at that point, I would say, your, your writer um, has created an original copyright work, some of which is his interpretation of the characters of those mm. things. I'll put it another way. I once asked... Uh, I was having this conversation with a literary agent, a friend of mine, who represents... Um, people predominantly who write non-fiction books right. and um, he, he said well you know I get producers phoning me up and saying um, do I need to uh, option XYZ book because uh, I want to make a, a, a dramatised movie about this particular chap's story mm-hmm. And the literary agent's response to that is, if you, if, if you didn't think you had to option the book, why are you phoning me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. So I don't know if that answers the it, question. It does, I think, I mean, what we're used to seeing, and then this is in film, but we're used to seeing, I don't know, for, for, for sake of a crass example, Hello Magazine have exclusive rights to show the wedding of Celebrity ABC. So, OK Magazine can't do it, can they? Correct. Well, well, that was the contractually, famous, contractually. Well, that was, the, I think, the Michael Douglas case, wasn't it? Yeah, so, yeah. so those kind of things. So what we're saying is... When you, if you, but it's get, a contract there. Yeah, and that's what you're saying this is, isn't it? It's like, but the idea, I think this is in your book, with the, the idea of if I go to that journalist version of O.J. Simpson, mm. then that'll bring out characters that he's giving characterisation. You know, he's reporting on the facts. Mm. So it might be that character A is, is, is this gregarious camp, you know, Whatever. singer, yeah. and then that becomes an important character of the story, but any other people's accounts go, no, 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 it's very dowdy in there, and blah, blah, blah. So it's like you're actually using that character as well that's come from that version of the story. Well, I think the example I used in the book was the, uh, the Hilary Mantel one. I mean, you know, the, the Henry VIII yeah. and Wolsey and... and that's right, yeah, Wolf, and all Wolf, of that. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, you know, her characterisation of those people was quite different to Robert Bolt's in Man for All Seasons. That's right. Another example that I can remember, there was a film that came out some years ago called uh, Life and Death of Peter Sellers that had Geoffrey Rush in it. Okay. And um, the screenwriter had sat down and written this biopic. I think it was made for TV. Mm. And shortly before the... Um, the, the film was due to be released or screened or broadcast, not one but two different authors of different biographies of Peter Sellers came out of the woodwork and said, you haven't cleared my book. Oh, wow. And, you know, the fact is that, that the case was settled. Uh, the screenwriter said, well, you know, I, I wrote, a, you know, you can go onto Wikipedia and find Peter Sellers, you can find a million things about mm. him. Mm. All this stuff's in the public domain, but I think... The E and O insurer essentially said, "You know what? Pay them a few thousand pounds, yeah, yeah, because it's it's easier to do that." And I think 
they probably uh, got some kind of a credit as well. I don't, I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that sort of thing can happen. Okay, that's interesting. That, because obviously, yeah, if you've poured your answers and you feel like you've identified the character, yeah. and you see someone else's show, and you go, "Oh, I've done that." Well, anyway, if I see you've written a screenplay about a motorcyclist who gets knocked over with the, I'm going to confirm it with an email after you. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> It's not bad. Maybe that's what I should do for my first screenplay, isn't it? Is it advantageous to register a script with a writing guild or a copyright? Yes. Um, well, obviously, you've got the WGA system, uh, and that's open to um, screenwriters from around the world. Um, and that's a, 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 an industry-monitored system, which, which shows that on a particular date you registered your script. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Library of Congress in uh, Washington has a copyright registry, um, and registering a copyright there gives you what they call a rebuttable presumption that you are the author. Okay. Uh, the problem about that is it's publicly open and anyone can see what you've registered, so why anyone would want to register something before it's been bought, I'm not sure, because I think for a screenplay... it's easy for someone to see it and pick it up and change it and whatever. Mm. Um, There are some uh, schemes here. So, for example, Rain Dance, the independent film organisation, they have a a script registration um, repository, which is very inexpensive and it's local. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't do any harm. It's evidence that on a particular date, you registered your copyright. It's not irrefutable proof that you wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, people ask me, do I think it's worth doing it? My answer is, well, you, it's probably not going to do you any harm. Because mm. it, it, it draws a line in the sand as to when you were in a position to say, here's my copyright work. I guess it comes back to that point about if you, if you have to ask, then maybe you, maybe you probably should kind of thing. It's, yeah, maybe. Right. Then. Here's something that I've, I've sort of come across with a few people. This this, this nutty issue about getting paid, um, where there's pro, you know, there's staged payment. So there's the here's the upfront payment to do the work, and on completion, what we accept, we will pay you the balance. But then there's the problem of something that's accepted in 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 sort of process, but not not paid on acceptance, but then it goes out to broadcasters. Broadcasters go, sorry, no, not for us. So the producer says, well, they passed on it, so we're not going to pay on the on the balance of that. Could it not be argued that if the producer has accepted it and sent it out for review by other third parties, that there has been acceptance of the finished work? Right. Um, this really boils down to answer one question one. It's what, what is in the contract? Okay. If you're contracting with a reputable producer um, and the producer says, right, I'm going to pay you 20000 for this script, 5000 now, 5000 first draft, 5000 second draft, 5000 on acceptance. Yeah. It is what it is. If the producer wants to make it conditional and say, look, I'm not going to pay you this money unless it gets accepted for broadcast, then make the last payment contingent on that, and then everyone knows where they stand. Okay. But, I mean, you're using the word acceptance. Acceptance by who? By the producer or by the broadcaster? Well, yeah, yeah. They, 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 and, they, and the contract should state what is meant. Yeah, yeah. So the contract, the con- as long as the, co- the contract is explicit, 
it, it, it's it's not for debate, then, is it? If if if, it well, is, it, it, if, if yeah. acceptances we get brought, we get we get commissioned by the broadcaster. That's one thing. If acceptance is I send is I send it off to broadcasters to be considered. They're just two different. They're yeah. clearly two different things. You know, it's, it's it's all these things that you know. You read a contract. Oh yeah, acceptance. Mm. Acceptance by two more words by producer by broadcaster by. Which is why you need to read what's written down. It, it doesn't mean to say that you won't have situations where a producer or someone <coughs> doesn't want to pay or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, that's something else. But you, you, you can at least put something in a contract. Now, this is a more general point about getting paid. I know there is no magic wand when there's no money. But what is the best way to protect yourself against non-payment? Um... That's not even a legal question. First of all, deal with honest people. Check people out. And uh, you and I have had uh, off-the-record conversations about some of the people in the business that you should be wary about dealing with. Mm. Um, Check out people. Uh, Because you meet someone in Cannes or at Berlin or or, or wherever who's got a card saying he's a producer, it doesn't mean to say that he's an established producer and or an honest producer. So you check out the people you're dealing with, try and get the contract to be explicit, uh, try and get some money up front, um, and try and create the best possible scenario for yourself uh, whereby you're not going to be needing to go to a lawyer to start suing or engaged large gentlemen with iron bars to collect what you wrote. <laughs> so in a way, personal due diligence, if you can do it, is never a bad thing. And nobody you're ever dealing with would ever be concerned if by they went, oh, I see you rung up Jim to see if I was all right, what it was like working with me. Nobody's going to balk at that, are they, in reality? Stuart, there is not a single... I mean, I, I, I get... Other than bad people, as it were. I get referred... A lot of people, right? Mm. Unfortunately, not all of them turn into clients. Not all of them have funded projects. And, you know, you have to kind of sift. Mm. But as soon as someone phones up, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on IMDB, I'm Googling. I check people out. Company's house for a company. Mm. Um, If it's something that seems to be lots of noughts, unless it's someone I've really heard of or they're referred by a very well-established um, client, I'm very wary. Um, you know, we get, we get people, uh, you, know, you know, even lawyers get, can get ripped off by unscrupulous mm. people. We have to be careful because mm. you can waste a lot of time. So essentially, the old adage, if it's too good to be true, it could possibly quite be. It usually is. Yeah. <laughs> right, then, you, you gave me a segue there, really, I think. So let's look at legal services and costs as our final okay. segment. Sure. Is there a ballpark figure producers should be allowing for in budgets for legal fees for a sub? Let's, let's say half a million pound right. movie. Nothing specific, because obviously that's you know, no. a piece of string, but as an idea for people who are looking at plant business plans for films, Right. What do you think they should be doing? Right, okay. Um, I get asked this question all the time. Okay. And I send people my menu. And my menu consists of a list of everything that I can think of that a producer might need from me. Mm. Um, And there will 
be things in there that not every producer will want because not every producer will need to clear book rights. Not every producer will be using third-party music. They might have a composer, etc., etc. So straight away there's this, that, and the other. And I say to them, tell me what you think you need help with Mm. and then I'll give you a figure for it. Um, The days when lawyers worked on hourly rates on independent films are gone and if, if a lawyer quotes you hourly rates then it's you know you're not going to end up with anything to make the film so most of us are used to working on a budget on a £500,000 film I can tell you I have quoted in recent times depending on what people want anywhere from twelve to £25,000 okay. and it really really depended how much you wanted the £12,000 quote was on a, a film for about £300,000. It's being produced by someone who's got a, a business affairs guy who does most of it himself. But what they really wanted help with was on the financing documents and some of the chain of title. Right, OK. Um, you know, sometimes people say, all I want you to do with the sales agreement is just have a quick look at it because they don't want to spend money on that. And there's two or three key things in the sales agency agreement you look at, so I'm not going to spend time doing it. Um, sometimes there's a chain of title. Sometimes there may have been two or three companies in the past mm. who've, you know, there's contracts to sort out, and that's the hard bit. Uh, I mentioned to you uh, also a project that's been in development for a couple of years where someone's invested money and got rights so you've got to work out what the turnaround provisions those kind of things can take a lot of legal time Mm. Um, but I know there are firms that have a a set price for independent films and it doesn't matter whether it's half a million or two or three million Mm. Um, but I will tailor the um, legal budget to what's required, the nature of the project, and what's needed. So, for those but people, I, I, I would say, you know, fifteen to twenty-five thousand pounds for most of what I would imagine is necessary. So, in, but in a way, given that the, the menu aspect of it, you welcome producers who might inquire, talk through what the project is, and then they. Identified. So when they're pulling the business plan together, I mean, you can have that conversation, can't you? I can. Well, you know, it works the other way. They will say, um, I'm making this film for 100 grand. I have 2,500 to spend on legals. Mm. What can you do for me? Oh, yeah, that would make more sense. And, and then I'll say, well, I can do this and this, or that and that. Makes sense. Um, you can't get an awful lot for two and a half. I mean, some people have got a different view. You know, I've got clients uh, who will say, um, you know, I did one last, no, two years ago, was uh, six, I think, worked out about 680 in the end of the budget. Mm. Um, and they spent £25,000. But it was a project that was fairly well developed and we had to take people out. Mm. You know, there was a a couple of people who had some interest in it, they had to be negotiated mm. out with overrides. So it's quite a few complicated things. Okay. But then they did a lot of the basic stuff in-house as well. It, 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 it really depends. 
Now, I think this might sound like a cheeky question. I'm not sure. Do 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 you? Is potential equity in a project ever appealing? Yeah, I did it once. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying once in inverted commas? <laughs> I did it once. I did a deferred. No, I didn't do equity. Uh, I deferred a lump of. I, I believed in a project, and I deferred a lump of the fee. Mm. Um, and it was, you know what? I felt I did an awful lot of work for not not a proper return. Mm. Um, so uh, the answer is I personally maybe when I'm retired I might sort of invest in something like that yeah 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 uh, I dare say in America there are there are people at the top end who might do that but no no I understand uh, is UK legal advice service just as useful when dealing with US production companies or do you refer people to right but that, that's a good question it, it, it really depends on what it is I mean um, the advantage for UK and US lawyers is that we're both what we call common law jurisdiction so we both have statutes and the law develops through case law right. so our approach is similar um, there are significant differences in certain areas of the law where uh, it is necessary for a bit of input from the states. Um, most producers that I, in fact all that I can think of in the UK, are conscious of the fact that at some point the thing will go to America. We are not, as English solicitors, we need a qualified nor regulated and therefore not insured to advise on American law. Okay. Okay? So if someone wants us, they'll, we'll say to them, look, I can read the contract and I can tell you what it's like uh, and what it means and this, that, on the assumption that their law's the same and it may not be. And most low-budget producers will be happy with that. Um, there are points that come up where I will refer them overseas mm. but having been in the business as long as I have I have um, I'm very fortunate I've got some good mates both in Los Angeles and New York and we work on a reciprocal basis so I can phone them up and say I've got a clause what do you think and they're not going to charge me mm -hmm. the next week or the next month they, one of them will phone me up and say Tony what do you think about this clause under English law and I don't charge them Right, okay. If it gets to something a bit <clears throat> complex and, and your red light kicks in, at that point you will say you need to get local advice. Mm. I had something recently that was written under the law of Arizona and there was something about it. Um, I, I had to say, look, I think it says this, I really think we need to get this checked. Um, and in fact, I referred it to a California friend of mine. I said, do you know someone who mm. practices in Arizona? Yeah. Um, because I don't understand this. And he said, well, actually, this is the same in California. And the answer is X, Y, Z. But at that point, I would have said to the client, you need to engage someone. Mm. So there's a, there, there, the answer is that, that I, I guess it's... Being experienced enough to judge when that 
particular button is pressed because it's quite often can be an expensive button. For example, there's all sorts of guild rules in America that I just don't have a clue about. Those things I always refer. Mm. There's one particular uh, law firm in, in Los Angeles who are really good on that that I deal with. So I would refer it at that point. Um, we had a corporate issue over an investment in a production company in um, California, and I just handed that over completely. Yeah, we so uh, we recently had an issue uh, where a client was doing a production uh, with an American corporation, and there was, and, and I, I I just referred that completely mm. to uh, chap in LA who, who did a fa- fabulous job for uh, sorting it out. But I guess I guess the, your advice, your advice, the underlying advice there is is sort of your your solicitor's best judgment is what's going to happen is that there are things that because of reciprocal arrangements you can sort out in the minor details, but if the legal issue is of a seismic, it will have to go to the USA to someone, and especially when you're talking like state versus national laws and right. Well, so the the, the copyright law in America is federal, so that's the same. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, uh, they have the, 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 ninth, the ninth circuit of appeal mm. circuit, mm. which deals with the uh, copyright intellectual property law appeals, mm. and we will read those. Mm. Um, English judges are not bound to follow them, but the lawyers who are now sitting as judges in IP cases, copyright cases here in the UK, will take note of those mm. uh, decisions. It's a very good court, very sensible, um, and, uh, and and very useful analyses. Well, finally, this one seems like a, a, a fairly straightforward, but I think I know the answer, but um, does does legal advice, if a producer or, or, or anyone to do with a film production was to come and see you regarding intellectual property in terms of ancillary rights, so, for example, merchandise or... You know, I think of like the Harry Potter theme parks you've got now, which obviously, are, you know, that's way beyond a film and a book, isn't it? When you've got a place to go walk around that leaves the studio, is, is that does that does that come does that is that something you'd want Absolutely. to have in your contract when you're making the film? The film oh, production? I, 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 interestingly, the I, SPV I, will say yeah, yeah, yeah. these things. It's all about contract, okay? Yeah. And one of the questions I will ask producers, particularly with genre films, you know, if you've got a scary monster or the new spook or a, a character, you know, is it merchandisable? Yeah, about the new Michael Myers or the new... new Whatever it is, and, and at that point, you know, your, your share of the back end should extend to it. Um, you know, I, I'm like, if you're writing a ghost pit, you might come up with an idea for what this ghost or this spook mm. or the zombie looks yeah. like. You know, is someone going to go to that store across the road from, in six months' time and want to spend twenty quid on a on a on a vinyl model? So it's it's a matter of contract. And that is obviously the, the thing to understand. I think for people listening is that that's other money, isn't it? That's nothing to do with film money. Somebody's going to say, "I'll gamble." 20,000 copy, copy rights in rights to make dolls. Yeah, I mean, it's a, in any kind of film like that, I always ask. I mean, merch is, you know, is t-shirts, t-shirts caps. caps, and all of that. I mean, virtually any film can have, have one of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, and at what point does it cease to be a promotional item and uh, become an income item? 
Well, for example, you know, you, you've been, we were both at Cannes last week. We were, yeah, yeah. Um, and there were all sorts of, you know, the, the, the 10 sales girls with the t shirt saying, you know, XYZ film on the front. Mm. Um, and they're promoting the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, in six months' time, is that film going to be so big that people will be buying the merch? I mean, you know, if it's a Hollywood blockbuster, and I dare say, well, I, no, I, th- I think the King Arthur's been uh, not not done too well. Well, Alien Covenant's done very well. And obviously, somebody's making money out of Alien dolls, aren't they? Well, exactly. I'm, I'm sure if you go to that shop across the street, yeah, yeah, yeah. they'll have Alien merch in there. Well, look, Charlie, thank you very much for your time. Mm-hmm. Dancing around these, uh, these various legal questions we're able to get from filmmakers. Your book is The Filmmaker's Legal Guide. Where where do you so where do you guest lecture then? Just as a summary point, uh, I do rain dance, which I've been doing for many years. I've recently started at the National Film and Television School. Okay, so uh, they very kindly um, recommending the book to their production and marketing students. Okay, and Portsmouth University, where they have a very interesting production course, very practical course. I've mm-hmm. been doing some lecturing there as well. Cool. Well, look, thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.